year is in, in incremental growth. And that's where, that's why I think some, some businesses don't make and, it. And if, and, and but I, some places open up and, and it's, it's, it's just a lottery. Yeah. Like they hit and it's just flowing in and flowing in. And again, yeah. those are the exceptions. I get it. That's not all the time. But like, and I know restaurant business overall is like, oh, it's a little gray area. I, I, I got two questions for you. Uh, one, L.A. versus London, because mm. we, we briefly talked about how the problems here are different than the problems there. Yeah. But they both have their problems and their situations. And then another question that we were talking about, now that you said the whole COVID thing, if you would have waited a year or two, fuck that, bike shit doesn't exist. Mm. Would you open up bike shit in L.A. today? Um, with the COVID and the whole situation yeah, I would. of everything going on. I think I would. I mean, I still think that the heart of the of bike culture is in California and Los Angeles. I kind of feel like it's a center yeah. for motorcycle culture. I think... Uh, of the world, is it not? Yeah, of the world. I think um, it's a difficult question to completely say yes to because economically, LA is not the powerhouse it was pre-COVID, especially in hospitality and retail. Um, and... You know, somebody said to me, if you go and do business in L.A., you're doing business with Hollywood right. and whether you like it or not, because the whole of the trickle down economy comes from media and creativity in the studios. Because uh, even if you're a, you know, a laundromat or, you know, or you're, you're kind of a flower arranger, you're, you're selling your products to people who are connected to that industry uh, or an Uber driver. You know, you're driving these people around. So you're always dealing with that. And, and I think, you know, right now, L.A. is not the powerhouse and huge amounts of actual production have moved out to Atlanta and to Austin and new places. And Canada obviously has always been there. And, and knowing that there's a big creative community of people that ride motorcycles and, and right. it's a world I know, um, that means, and because it's the, the heart of LA's financial power, um, there are, we would have considered other cities and, and other cities would have come up and we'd probably be looking at Atlanta and Austin as equal contenders along with LA. And I think- um, Atlanta, we, that big, huh? Well, Atlanta is a huge kind of creative center. There's a lot of motorcycle mm -hmm. riders there. A lot of people in LA who are displaced have moved to places like, uh, like Atlanta, like Austin. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, people talk about um, Scottsdale and Phoenix a lot as well, where people are kind of moving to and, and Denver. So there's a lot of people that are in the creative industries and kind of moving out across the U.S. And, and L.A. suddenly is becoming a, a big explosion right now of, of now, are, people are, are living the, differently. Are those places, because um, um, obviously we're motorcycles, well, your motorcycles, mm. uh, is the seasons a consideration, you know, riding season, non-riding season? Or, you know, even I know a lot of people are going to Atlanta, but I think there's a point where the weather's just so humid and so hot that they kind of like... I think seasonality is something people talk about a lot in L.A. because there isn't any. Right. But in the rest of the world, there's seasonality. Right. And but as a business owner, or focusing but, on a motorcycle thing. Yeah, but the thing is what we're not. I mean, okay, the worst example of that is Newcombs. I love Newcombs. Right. And it's closed, which is a real shame. Unfortunately. But yeah. imagine running Newcombs, because I've imagined running Newcombs, because a few people have said you should go Get buy that. Newcombs, um, and if I had the money, maybe that would be interesting to me. But you, you've got to be at the top of a mountain, 3,000 feet up or whatever, where it's going to snow and then you're closed. There's going to be a fire, you're closed. There's a right. landslide, you're closed. It's too wet and too rainy, no one comes. You may as well be closed. 
how do you, you know, in, in any place, there's, there's a real extreme degree of seasonality. So you've just got to make sure that the business model makes sense. Right. And in London, there are two or three months a year where you really don't want to ride a motorcycle. It's just wet and cold and miserable. But we make more money in those three or four months because bike riders and people who like good food come to Bike Shed and they drink more and they stay longer. So you just deal with seasonality in a different way because we're a motorcycle destination, but what we're not is a roadside cafe for bikers in the middle of Angeles Crest, which is only driven by people riding up there. So my, my challenge with, with sort of any place we open up is when the seasons are bad, who's coming right. and why? And in London, I would say half our customers don't ride and they come to our venue because it's about motorcycles, not because they ride a bike, but because they think bikes are cool. The lifestyle. They love being around bike people because bike people are interesting. Some hardcore people will always ride, even if the weather's crap. So there's always going to be some motorcycles in the parking. Some badass uh, coming in all the Yeah, way. there's always going to be a few and they're surrounded by cool eye candy. But, you know, we're in the middle of Shoreditch and within, the, you know, there are 36,000 people within a square mile of us out partying and having fun and looking for restaurants and bars on, on any night in the weekend. So we're in a place with high footfall, which is why for me, Bike Shed works better in central city destinations because, you know, people will come to us on, and when you come here in the week and the weekend, it's a very different crowd. Different, completely. You know, the weekend is... Even the day versus the night, yeah, the I Friday mean, night versus the... Yeah. Yeah, it's all different. Sunday breakfast. serve different crowds. I mean, in the weekday, daytime, we serve a local community and all the businesses. And then a few bikers come in on top to make it cool and interesting. Great. I just walked in and the whole LAPD was here. Yeah. <laughs> they've, they've got a big function on and they like the place and their stations up the road and said, can we do our big holiday party here? And we're like, yep, help yeah. yourself, book tables, go. So, um, so for me, that, as long as we bear that in mind, wherever we go, are we in a place that will be successful anyway? So the baseline is, are you a really good cafe, bar, lounge, restaurant, retail for someone who turns up in a car, now add the bikes? And, uh, and for me, that's important. I mean, you don't want to go too far because there are certain other competitors who you know, have a bit of a reputation for the SUVs in the car park and yummy mummies in yoga pants on their laptops, right. you know, drinking a cappuccino and there's no real sense of culture. But what we've got, I think, is we have the club, we have the members, most of our staff ride. The, the, you know, there are, there's so much to see and do here. So it's many events. Room. You can buy crash helmets and gloves and boots and it feels a little more authentic. Um, but you've got to look at where this place would work anyway. And, and in the UK, we've got the litmus test of seasonality and, and I think anywhere we go, with some exceptions, I think we, as long as there's a big enough population of people that like good food, good service, and buying cool things and looking at nice bikes. And consistency. Then, you know, we should get them. But it's, it's tough. Yeah. Because you have to PR yourselves like a restaurant. Somebody asked me the other day, oh, what made you leave the media business and get into hospitality? And I said, please don't tell me I'm in the hospitality industry. That was not my intention. No. Hospitality is an outcome of looking after the community. So you have to be good at it. But I don't consider myself in the hospitality industry. Yeah. I'm in the community industry. That's the experiential true. industry. My job is to deliver great experiences to a community who I know. I know who they are. And it's people who like motorcycles. Uh, that's, that's what we do. Uh, the restaurant's just a very confusing side project. 
No, the, ra the whole thing is interesting because, you know, what we were talking about before, you have this hate thing where it's like this person believes in this and that person believes in that. But to bring that into motorcycles, it's funny because you got like Harley riders and then the Harley riders don't like the Triumph riders and the Triumph riders don't mm -hmm. like the sport bike riders. The sport Ducatis don't like the, you know, you still have that, but nobody's not going to sit down and not have a beer with each other. They're still going to continue bonding and hanging out. And then same thing, you have, you have the food is so complex. Like, how do you know what to serve? Do you serve this food or that food? Do you make it like, it's very complex. Yeah. It's very intricate. It's a very challenging project you chose. You have to be in it. You have to, you have be, to be a it. customer. And you're in it. Like I, yeah. I've come here, it doesn't matter when, you guys are in it. Yeah, if you don't see me here, I'm in the office answering emails no. and doing meetings. I'm always here. And same with Vicky. Same with Vicky, you know, the management, Stu, everybody. I mean, somebody said to me, how did you guys build Bike Shed? And my answer is one customer at a time. You no. meet everyone and you say hello. Before we did this podcast, I spent 20 minutes talking to a guy I don't know. Right. Because he wanted to say hi and he wanted to chat. And I felt, give him some time. He's, he's made an effort to drive all the way here from Malibu um, in, on a motorcycle with his son on the back. I'm going to talk to him. The guy made an effort. And I see you guys talk to everybody. Yeah, we, we do because it matters. They made an effort. They've come to my house. I love that response. One customer at a time. Yeah, and, and uh, it's a very slow way of building a business. But... I think it, it's a good basis and, and that should be infectious. And then the people you hire should be doing the same thing. So, you know, the fact that you guys know our team and uh, Morgan has just poked his head in the door. You know, Morgan's badass, you, you bring, super excited. You bring people in who feel the same way you do. Yeah. And that, that way it becomes infectious, it becomes a thing. And there's Stuart and there's Fiona and there's, there's a whole crowd of people and, and our managers who are always gonna go the extra mile. Nobody's working with me at Bike Shed, with me and Vicky, to make loads of money. No one's well paid. Most people earn less than they could in another job, and they do it because they love what they're doing. And most people are not counting their hours and, you know, kind of waiting for home time. And, it, and when, on their time off, when they finish their shift, they're probably going to sit down at a table and have some food and have some beers and stick around. You know, and, and people come into work when it's not their work day. Right. So we're, a, we're the same community as our customers. And I think that allows us to deliver what you're talking about. So we will subtly change our business and our flow and our staffing and our menus all the time. When we first built this place and we decided to have a member's bar, which we don't have in London, I had no idea how it would be used. Right. Um, and I thought, well, is the member's bar where you go on a quiet Wednesday afternoon and it's all quiet in the restaurant and you go in the member's bar and suddenly there's 100 people in there and you're like, oh, this is where the action is. Well, no, because it's, California, it's sunny outside. We've got this beautiful, airy, open vibe. And this is a dark club room with an open right. fire. And so people prefer this for evening drinking and for an appointment. Like, we're gonna do a quiz night, we're gonna have a members night, we're gonna do it, it's somebody's birthday. So this has become more of a members function room. But you adapt and you right. go, that's how to use this spot. And same with our menu, same with our pricing, same with you, how we use the space. You, you brought up, if I recall, on the last time you were on the podcast, you brought up that uh, London doesn't have a member uh, lounge like you just brought up right now. But that the pro to that was that all the member meetings were in front of everybody else. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, look at those. The, what are the, who are those people? Oh, those are our members. Oh, that's cool. I, I want to be a member. or I want to see what's going on. And it was more welcoming where this kind of separated if you were to redo it now, because this is the first time you've had the experience yeah. of having a member lounge. And, and this is not, this is such a highlight for the members and, and we love it. And it's not even complete because we can't even use the outside because of the construction, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
But once it's fully operational, what is your thought? Like, would you have done something different for this? I think um, yes and no. I mean, if we were making loads of money um, and found that sweet spot of how to be super profitable and the economy comes back to life, yeah, I'd do the same thing because then I could afford to have, what do we got? 450, uh, maybe 600 square feet of space, which mostly is doing nothing all day with no one. Right. Because members come evenings and weekends. Right, after work. And now, right stuff. now, in the current economic climate, I'm going, how do I make this room make money? Well, let people hire it out. People have done photo shoots in here and, and you know, they've done interviews and we use it for podcasts. And so we try and create activity in here. I think... Um, so it is so, for rent. It is, it is rentable. It, it, yes and no. Members come first. If right. members want to use it, it's not for rent. Right. Uh, but what we'll do is if we are, we'll, we'll rent it very occasionally uh, for so something sorry. where... We're, and and we, we sort of do it apologetically. We're like, we're really sorry, members. But if somebody's going to give me 10 grand for a day to shoot in here to do some cover for a magazine or whatever, and they've got budget and they're looking for a room that looks like this, it's my duty as a as a business owner to try and make that money because I'm, you know. I don't think a member would we, disagree and, and with I think that. If any member ever said to me, hey dude, I wanted to sit in, on my own in the members lounge on Tuesday afternoon and you booked it out for a shoot, I'd be like, I'm really sorry, I'll buy you dinner. I'm yeah. sorry you couldn't use the members lounge. Uh, unfortunately, we're a business and right now, you, everyone's, everyone knows that the strikes have taken about $8 billion out of the LA economy. You know, throw us a bone, give us a break and you know, let us do what we can do. But I think in principle, I like the idea of having a member's sanctuary. I think the one thing that I would do differently is we've made it really dark and really sort of like, like an old English club and the drapes are closed and there's no natural light. And I think that means it's really incongruous with the rest of the space. So you're less likely to hang out here yeah. in the daytime. Unless yeah, you're especially trying to being escape. like California, yeah. you know, like. So maybe I'd design it differently maybe it wouldn't be quite so dark or this would be one of two rooms so i think we'd probably just format it a little differently and, and I, I love the u-shaped bar but you can never get more than two servers behind a u-shaped bar of that size which means if point. there's too many people in here which there has gonna been take a while to get drinks so whenever we have a crowd in here we have to have another server on the floor taking drinks by hand right which means which is a really inefficient way of running a bar right so maybe we'd configure it differently but yeah, you learn stuff. I mean, every time yeah, we do another bike shed, it'll be better than the last one. It does take up a lot of room, huh? Yeah, it's, it's, but it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it it's, looks it's, so it's, nice. I was taking photos of it the whole time. Yeah. Tommy's. Well, yeah. You have a Tommy sign. The napkins say Tommy's. Uh, you have shirts at one point. Yeah. It said yeah. Tommy's. Uh, what, what's, what's Tommy's? Well, uh, Tommy's is the worst kept secret in the world. Um, we have a lot of investors. People always ask me, oh, who owns bike shed and blah, blah, blah. And and Bike Shed is funded by 99 investors. So a lot of people, 99 investors. investors, which is pretty crazy. So when we first started Bike Shed in London, there were about 30 people. So two people turned up at the beginning and said, your show should be a full-time space. And we were like, well, great, but who's going to pay for it? And they said, well, we will. So they gave us some money to scope it out. And then they became our first two investors. And then through them and people we knew in the community, we said, Who's willing to throw 50 grand, 100 grand, 20 grand at a dream that might be a thing one day and you'll all be shareholders? So about 30 people put money in and we raised a couple of million dollars and we built Bike Shed London um, and then had to fund it into profitability with a bit more money. Um, and yeah, probably about three million dollars in, we kind of went, OK, this works great. Um, and then when we came to America, we had to raise money again. 
and we added more and more people. And some of our members are investors. People who came in early on said, well, what else can I do? Right. And I'd say, well, have you got 50 grand? <laughs> and so an awful lot of people put money in. And, and, you know, the biggest shareholder that we have put in a million dollars and the smallest shareholder, I think, probably put in 10 grand early days. So it's quite a spacing. Um, and one of our, we have a few celebrity backers that, that don't mind us sharing their names, um, including uh, Woody Harrelson and Tom Hardy is one of our investors. Also, Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. Wow. Tom Clemente, if you've seen her in Guardians of Galaxy and Mission Impossible. Uh, Nicholas Holt, if anybody's been watching him in the great, wow. he's pretty great. Um, so a few interesting people. But, but they're all small stakeholders. But Tom right. Hardy was one of our early backers. He's a friend. Uh, Vicky and him know each other very well. She got him riding bikes legally and get him, got him his license because he was doing bike stuff for films. And uh, they're, they're always texting each other. And, you know, they're very, you know, I think they're very similar people. They get on really well. And uh, so he's, he, and he introduced us to a lot of people in LA who really helped us. Yeah. Um, including some of our other backers and friends who helped connect us with the right realtors, the right legal team, you know, other people who had money. And um, Tom famously doesn't drink. Uh, and I th he thought it would be funny if we named the bar after a non-drinker, if we called it Tommy's. And he just made a throwaway comment. Like, Hilarious. And we were like, well, actually, we've got to call the bar something. And so we decided to put the name up and never tell anyone why. Yeah. Like, just keep it, like, if, you know, if you know, you know. Right. Thing. Uh, but it's leaked out enough. And I knew the Tom Hardy part. Yeah. But I always thought the second half, the, the S... Was because of uh, Tom Cruise or something? No, no. I mean, I'd, I'd love Tom to be one of our backers. He's not at this point. Tom, if you're watching, throw us some money. You're the perfect guy. Bike shed. Yeah. I Has mean, he, he been in? Yeah, he's, he's had dinner at Bike Shed. Um, Vicky nice. and I had like a two and a half hour dinner with him. He came with uh, Pom Clementiev for dinner because she's on uh, Mission Impossible and, and she's very close to Vicky. And um, she's like, oh, I'm bringing Tom. And we, we were like shitting ourselves and thinking, oh my God, Tom Cruise is coming. What does like, that mean? Like, like I get goosebumps, like, cause that's like yeah. a, a super, yeah. like how does, I mean, and, and Tom Hardy is, is, is there, but how do you, how do you deal with Tom Cruise? Like, well, I think it was interesting cause uh, you know, he's this kind of megastar with this aura around him, especially in, you know, he's royalty in America. If, you know, I mean, he, he's up there with the, the greats in, in Hollywood. The greats, and, the greats yeah. yeah. So, um, and he's got his interesting controversies and backstories and stuff. So I was kind of nervous because I admire him as well as a man. He's slightly older than me and he's fit and he's healthy. And there's a lot of things about great. him I really yeah. like. And a lot of 60, things, right? Yeah, and a lot of things I just don't know. So I was very intrigued to meet him. But more than anything, he's a bike rider. And, uh, and we and didn't know one. if he'd come with like some huge entourage. But um, I mean, I know his security scoped us out the day before because there was a guy wandering around checking the place out and looking at the exits. But he came really incognito, walked into the place, said hi to everybody. Uh, was my daughter was there? He was like shook her hand and said hi and said nice things and was very very pleasant. And then you know, uh, Pom was like, "Well, we're all having dinner. Well, you know, where are we having dinner?" We didn't know he wanted dinner with me and Vicky. I was like, oh, "Okay," so we were kind of thrown into this social thing, and he was just like a regular guy because we talked about bikes. You know, we it was just like so you know, you ride, awesome, what, why, how, you know, and, and it's one of my favorite conversations with anybody, especially when you meet people who you respect and admire or someone who's famous. Yeah. You go, what do you ride and why and how? And we talked about 
him when he was a kid building his a bike in his neighbor's basement so his mum didn't know he had a bike and then when he first rode it the throttle got open and, and it, he crashed into his neighbor's car and he hurt himself and he had to hide the injury he had to hide the damage to his neighbor's car he had to rebuild the bike and and then of course i talked to him about well, how much actual stuff do you do in the film when you actually ride the bike so we had that conversation and then so we did talk so you, a little, you had a podcast with him yeah undocumented. We, we do you know what okay so one of the things that we've always talked about is these conversations with people like tom cruise and tom hardy and other people should be podcasts and yes I, we will do that we will get yes. to it we we tickled it if you like uh at last year's show in may right we did shed talks and we did them on stage and we turned them into podcasts and we did three camera shoots and they're available on youtube and you can see them on our youtube channel so if you look at bike sheds shed talks they're there and we, one of the ones we did was with um uh, oh my God, I'm suddenly have a brain fart uh, with Tom Cruise's stunt coordinator. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, I don't know his name, but yeah. I'm just completely, I've, I've met him five times and I'm embarrassed. So if he's watching, he'll go and go, what an asshole. Uh, the, the old one or the new one? Uh, the, the new, the, the guy who does his stunts now. And um, Wade Eastwood. So I don't know why I couldn't get his name from it. So Wade Eastwood. And, uh, and we talked about movies and motorcycles and he's been there from day one with doing stunt work and stunt coordinator and motorcycle rider and it was really interesting it was really good so we want to do more of that but the, the great thing about being able to do that was i could have a two and a half hour dinner with tom cruise and we just talked about bikes like two Priceless. dudes i mean i did try asking Priceless. other questions and can i ask what he ate uh he ate um, a little bit of everything he tried our steak uh he had a burger and something else and he ate half of all of them he was like oh, i want to try a few things what's good that's so awesome and he just and just ate a bit of everything and he was super nice and he just sat on a regular table in that alleyway that you see on uh, youtube where people ride down the alleyway he was just there and you could see people going <laughs> and, and and i think at bike shed people have this vibe that you don't mess with celebrities yeah because they're here as bikers and yeah they're not making a big deal so he didn't get until the very end when he left one guy wanted uh, a selfie and he very graciously said okay um but i think a lot of the people you know people like that know they can come here and they tend not to get bothered, right yeah is, it's interesting that yeah, we, we have that space. we have we have that but yeah he was really really nice and i mean uh, you know what he's really good at is he looks you right in the eyes and he talks to you and he makes you feel special he wants to know about you. He knows he's interesting. Yeah. So he spent the whole time with me and Vicky going, tell me about your business and how did this come about and why have you done this and, you know, what motivated you? And, you know, it's pretty amazing when you're talking to somebody of that caliber in, in world standing where they want to know who you are. Right. And uh, they don't have an agenda. They're not uh, trying to pitch you. They're not trying to get anything out of you. He wasn't. Yeah, he, he had. There was nothing you wanted from us. This is this is this treated is, like a normal human. This is you know this is uh, episode 125 or something like that. This is what I like. I, I get to ask people, hey, like, can we just sit down and talk? Mm. Can we just like like I don't know where this conversation went. <laughs> and, and look, we went all over the place. Yeah, I don't know how and we started on food and on health. food I'm and health and aging an and everything and you know any on, of those and we're not. But but this is this is what happens when when you sit down with people is that the, you you get into intricate conversations and you know what's on your mind and what's happening in the world and you know you learn a little here and you learn a little there it, it, it's just fun but there's no other situation that i me myself can sit down with somebody else and say hey do me a favor silence your phone 
Mm. And let's, let's fucking talk, man. And let's, let's share this information with the world. You know, let it be your business, let it be health, let it be whatever the case is. And, and I love that. I love that. This is why I do yeah. it. There know? are many formats. The other thing I found interesting is I did a podcast the other day with um, Adam from Triumph. And um, he did the whole thing with headphones and a microphone, yeah. which we did first We did time. the first time, yeah. And, uh, and what I quite enjoyed about that, I mean, I like this too because it's relaxed. But one of the things I didn't realize was when you are on headphones and you hear your voice back um, Game changer. on speakers, you talk differently. You, firstly, you listen better. Because I've got a terrible habit, and if you guys have observed this, I'm, I tend to interrupt people when I don't mean to. I get excited about what I'm going to say. I do the same thing. And I jump in. Yeah. And so I know that I'm really bad for doing that. Sometimes yeah. don't let people finish. If, if someone gives me a gap in the sentence, I'm in. Yeah. Uh, so my apologies for that. Yeah. Um, but on headphones, I don't do it because I'm really listening. In tune. You give people more time. And you hear yourself. And I think I'm better at good sound bites because I hear what I'm saying back. I guess maybe it's like looking in the mirror from an audio perspective. I, I, I interviewed uh, Detective Quinn Redeker, and Detective Quinn Redeker is one, was one of the top uh, roadie cops, you know, the cops that do the stuns. Oh, yeah. And he went to France and comp he competed worldwide. He's like one of the top motorcycle riders in the world. But he's a detective, and then he used to do Bomb Squad. You know, he did all these things. And we did a podcast. With, I went to the mm -hmm. Ventura Police Station, and he put on the headphones. And not only it, it, you get to hear yourself and you get to, you know, if, like the, the squ chair squeaking, you can catch it. And if you interrupt somebody, you can catch it. But it, it's the experience is so in tune mm. that you're so hyper focused that nothing distracts you. You're, you're hyper focused on the conversation. And he was like, man, this is like I've never had this experience. Yeah. If I was able to interrogate, <laughs> like, mm. the, like, you know, put these headphones on and interrogate, it, it's 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 you're just caught up in your own thoughts. Yeah, it's kind of sensory deprivation, isn't it? And you, your the, your sensory sense of speaking yeah. and listening yeah. are heightened. Yeah. And you're blocking out other noise. It's like noise cancellation headphones in the gym and you realize somebody's been talking to you for two minutes he didn't notice. Right. And it's that. It's that focus on your words and your thoughts and that distillation of ideas and, and a sense of requirement to be brief and concise, get your point across and know when to stop. And to stop. And... You're so in tuned and hyper focused. It's it's mind boggling, mm. and 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 I do like it. In my studio. I always have the headphones. It's it's my favorite thing. There's a gate downstairs, and every time it opens, if mm. you don't have the headphones, it's the loudest thing in the world. Yeah. But the mic doesn't get it. So when you when you focus, when you come into the studio, but then I started doing this, and now I've learned to edit so well that mm. I I can make this sound like when I have the full equipment. But I also, we're kind of in a giant headphone, aren't we? I mean, we're in this darkened room. Oh, this is, this is the worst in, but... acoustics. Is it? Oh, it's the worst because you have the echoes, you have yeah. squeaking, you have doors opening. Like, yeah. they, 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 this is, for, for sound, like the best thing we have here is a carpet. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the best thing. That's true. Everything else, and maybe these cloth, uh, cloth seats, but for acoustics, this is absolutely. Yeah, actually, I can imagine. But I, I, I've been successful mm -hmm. at cleaning it up, and it, I make it sound like that with the mic. Because the same thing, the headphones when you're doing the podcast, game changer. But when you have that mic that filters everything mm -hmm. out, is game changer. Yeah. And I can get to that point where I feel comfortable with. It's a great format, though. I mean, the, the more and more I get involved in other people's, the more I get excited about doing it. Because, you know, you do, I mean, I love the fact we had a really unexpected conversation. Very unexpected. Um, and it, it brings things out. You, you kind of want to watch your podcast ten, 10 years ago and go, who was I then? 
What did I think? What did I, how differently do I feel now? It's nice to capture yourself. And it's also, like you say, it's nice to give time where your phone is off. And you escape it. You're just giving somebody a bit of time for what's in your head. I don't often get to do that. I'm in yeah. so many meetings and firefighting and writing emails and looking at contracts. Well, you're so always looking for the next thing to do that mm. you have to do. And, and catching the story is very important. I, I don't want to, maybe I'll edit this part out or not, but I had, a, I, had a, I, I had a, there's a guy that I knew at the gym, 63 years old, single father, has a 12-year-old uh, son, and everybody knows him at my gym. You know, mm. like for the last 15 years, he's always there with his kid. He brings his kid, he plays basketball. And, and this guy's healthy and eats good, and he's in the film industry and the movie stuff. He's a stunt guy. Anyways, uh, when I traveled, I came back. When I came back, I haven't seen him around. Mm. And, and I was kind of curious. And I was like, what's going on? Like, like what do you, you know, he talks about changing gyms. Anyways, long story short, I, I heard he got a heart attack and he died. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God, his poor kid. And like, you know, oh my goodness, like, like he was so healthy. What happened? It bothered me, but what bothered me more is that he wanted to be on the podcast and share his story. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, wow, like capturing these stories, yeah. like how much would that have meant to his son? Yeah, it would you know, have like been amazing. Now or five years from now. Yeah. And, and it's, 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 you have these success stories and you have these struggles that you also want to share and document it. And, and it just made me appreciate this that much more. And now it's like when I have opportunities to interview and get people's story and just learn little fun facts or, 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 or fo you know, be hyper-focused on, on a chess game with somebody. It's, it's amazing documenting because you don't know what loved ones are going to go back and, and watch your video on YouTube. Especially as the world changes so fast. Especially. I mean, that's the crazy thing because all the opinions and ideas we have right now in 10 years' time will probably be irrelevant. The podcast I have before COVID and during COVID, mm. if I go back and listen to those, those are going to be wild i mean i remember doing podcasts and everybody was terrified we're like oh man can't believe we're doing this <laughs> spraying alcohol on each other like, <laughs> like we're just like <laughs> so funny. wearing masks like elbow bumping, elbow bumping. Like, it's so funny even now it seems weird but i mean that i mean I, I talked earlier about uh reading noah yuval harari who wrote an amazing book called sapiens and then he wrote a book yeah, called I, Hom uh, homo deus uh, we, so sapiens is the history of man up until now right homo deus is all about well where next man's ascent into being godlike and then 21 Lessons for the 21st Century is the bridging book that says, okay, well, what do we do now? And all of those books were written pre-COVID. But you hear him talking a few times about the possibility of mass hysteria and what would happen if, you know, in case of some kind of viral disaster, because he talks about sort of the things that threaten humanity. But yeah, I almost want, I need him to read, like, I really like his writing. I'm like, could you write a new book, please? Because yeah, an updated I need version. An updated version of the post-COVID. What What do you think now? Because so much has changed. I mean, he wrote that book. I think Trump had just come to power. The UK was in a complete mess politically. Um, it was before P Putin was invading anywhere new. You know, there was no whispers of anything kind of going on. <laughs> what a on. crazy world. Yeah, huh? and no, you know, there wasn't any kind of chaos in the Middle East. Well, different chaos in the Middle East. And the world was, yeah, completely different. And also AI was not a potential threat that some people that we should respect are saying this could be the thing that ends us all. None of those things was on our radar. You know, we didn't have a pandemic uh, to, to sort of focus all, or change us all and rewire us and turn some people into hermits and turn us all into sort of Netflix guzzlers. So you kind of go, everything's different in, in what, three years? 
In three years? Yeah, in three years' time, the whole of the world has changed forever, immeasurably. And, you know, and, and as big things happen, I think especially with AI. AI yeah. is the scariest one. Did you watch the last Mission Impossible talking about Tom Cruise? Yeah, I did, yeah. You know how the AI tricked the submarine, yeah. the thing, like that was crazy. And, and I never thought of AI tricking us. And But even that, I mean, that script was written a couple of years ago. Right. And right. even now, I mean... The, the, oh, that's nothing compared to... Frog, well, I think that, because if you read this, this book, this Life 2.0, there's AI and there's AGI. So AGI is what we're really talking about. That's Terminator level, artificial general intelligence. So I'm an AGI and I know this is a cup and I know what it's made for and I know what it's made of and it's made to hold hot drinks because of the shape of it and I know it's made of china and I know that it'll drop, it'll break if I drop it. I understand the cup and I can make decisions about what I do with it. I could throw it in the fire and see what happens. I could chuck it across the room. I could fill it with water. I could pour the water on the floor. That's AGI, understands that. AI is the shortcut. AI doesn't know that's a cup. But if I say to, uh, if I go on Pixlr and go, draw a cup, you know, give me a photo of a cup on a round black table in front of an open fire, it will draw this scene. And we go, oh my God, AI knows what a cup is and knows what a fire is. It doesn't. It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut to going, I've looked at every photograph that ever exists and all the word data associated with it. And whenever I see cup, fire, table, black, round, these ones and zeros come up and create a JPEG that looks like this. So here's a version. Do you like it? And then you go, yes. And if you go, if you go yes, then the algorithm goes tick and it's learned a bit more. And, and I kind of, so what's happened is we very quickly and with ChatGPT, ChatGPT doesn't know what it's saying. You could say, write me a thank you letter to the president of my school for the award that the school gave me. Um, and I want to be humble and sincere. And ChatGPT will do it for you. But it doesn't know what those words mean. It's not general intelligence. It's uh, data gathering intelligence. Like, what do other thank you letters look like? Let's cross-reference them. And then let's look at the most successful versions of that and then deliver it back to the person who's asked for it. And, but the thing that I kind of realize is AI looks like AGI. And so it can read a contract better than a lawyer. It can diagnose your illness better than a doctor. It doesn't understand the human body that. and it doesn't understand contract law, but it knows what words to look for in a contract and it knows what symptoms add up to this most likely outcome. So if your primary care physician is 70% successful at diagnosis, AI only has to be 71%. And it's better. And it's better already. Uh, and if, right now it's operating at the, in the kind of the high 80s. So AI doctors are, tend to be about 15 to 20% better than primary care physicians yeah. at working out what's wrong with you. And it's not doing it through real intelligence, not through general intelligence. It's doing it through mimicking and data and copying. And I think that's given AI a big leapfrog that none of us were expecting because although it's not the Armageddon we thought we were getting, it's a completely different kind of Armageddon. It's like... We look like you, but we're not you. Right. But we, for if you're a human, and humans find faces in trees and rocks and wallpaper, because we, you know, our brains are prediction machines. They look for patterns and formulas and shapes. We read ChatGPT and we look at AI photos um, on Midjourney and things like that. We think it's all real. And so we're really easily fooled by bots, Very. robots, fake emails, 
I got an email the other day saying, oh, I followed your journey through, you know, congratulations on winning the British Empire Medal for your work during COVID with the Bike Shed community response. And I really admire Bike Shed, all written by AGI, by AI, not AGI, all written by some spam bot trying to get my business. Wow. And you go, oh my God. What's it coming but to? But it looks real. Right. And, and, and it feels real. It feels real. Yeah, not and looks, in three years real. time, you're not, you're not going to be able to tell them. It's going to be a different story. So, you know, any conversation, anything I'm saying right now about AGI and AI will be wrong yeah. by default in a couple of years' time. And the whole world will be... I mean, I'm not place. saying it, it didn't exist. I'm not saying that at all. But three, four years ago, this level of where we're at is, is unheard of. Yeah, like, because, I, like, of, the like, cheat, because like, of the shortcut. I use ChatGPT. Mm. I, 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 I use it like I'll sit down... It's funny because somebody says AI is not going to take right now, right mm -hmm. now. AI is not going to take over, but the people that learn how to use AI are going to take over right now. And then later on, AI will take over. But like, I'll spend a good amount of time of writing about this episode. I'll write about, look, I sat down with Dutch and we talked about here and this minute I did that, listen to the pocket and I'll add do, 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 a bunch of stuff. And then I'll say, all right, write a description, write a title, write me a social media post, right? And it's like I have three, four writers just going at it, and it just does it, knocks it all out. So it'll take me 45 minutes to an hour to just put in, you know, because I got to listen to the episode and put in the information, what is it? But the results are, make it, give it a tone, make it sound cool, fun, engaging, blah, blah, blah. Find the newest hashtags that are fucking hitting and, you know, like put a link to the website, and if you instruct it, you know, where you're yeah. doing the work, the more information it has, the more real and positive it feels. And, and, and some people might be like, oh, well, you should be hiring people and you should be doing it. It's hard, man. It's hard to hire. Well, how? Like how? With what money? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, a friend of mine who's a, a director, he said he did all his storyboards and treatments using MidJourney and ChatGPT. And he's kind of embarrassed on the one hand, but he said what would normally take four weeks and 10 people has taken me two weeks and I did it on my own. Now, I, he's in a competitive environment. Right. So if you're in a competitive environment and other people are doing that, how do you not do that? How do you not do that? Which is why people are firing marketeers and copywriters and, and you know, other people as well, you know, in, in other, other areas of business where you write and read copy. Right. You know? and, and, and if you do it the right way, you're still spending a lot of time. It's not just like, hey, write me a, an episode description, a title, and that's it. Like, you still have to put enough information where it feels natural and organic. Well, you're changing the skill set. Your skill set becomes instructional. Right. So he's a, this guy, this friend of mine, he's a creative. So he considers his creative input is his ability to instruct. So what he does is he, he writes, he asks ChatGPT to write the brief for mid-journey, but he gives all the prompts to ChatGPT. So there's like a two-step journey into yeah. them creating imagery. I, I haven't him, messed with mid-journey. Which mid is interesting. But his skill is his signature, his stuff. And also he pays for the mid-journey level where you can't share it and no one else gets to see it. So it's his IP. But on the other hand, it's just also life. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we now, you know, we don't walk places, we go in cars. And in between that, we were riding horses. I mean, as humans, we find shortcuts to achieve things more quickly. And you had blacksmiths yeah. when you had horses. But and also, you had like, you know, 25 years ago, you've stuck a camera over there and stuck a couple of radio clip mics on here. But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that's a two-man ENG electronic news gathering crew 
hired with in van. with high-end equipment and oh. everything plugged in and cables all over the place and a sound man monitoring the sound all the time. And you need a different person to do editing. You need to do an offline edit first using VHS and then you do an online edit. And you can't do a mix unless it's a three machine edit. You know, there are so many things that have changed. Right. And all these shortcuts allow more people to be creators. And, and again, you know, using these tools allows you to do more and get more stuff done. I think that the challenge for me is where do we get de-skilled? Because right now, I really take pride on knowing cities and maps and where I am. If I go to a conference or if I, anywhere I travel in the world on business, I'll get a map out and go, where's this hotel in relation to city? Where's the town? Which way's north? Where am I? You know, what's near to me? I, I'm very geographically aware. I can point at things and I know where things are. And, you know, somebody said, oh, there was an earthquake this morning at 710 in the Baldwin Scenic Overlook Hills, whatever it's called. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's over there. So I'm, I can point at it. I know where we are. And right. um, that kind of thing matters. But a lot of people, they don't know. And they'll, they'll go to Google Maps and they'll go, take me to this destination. And they'll take whatever route it says, even if the route's wrong, makes no sense avoids a hazard that's no longer there. It'll go off a freeway back onto a freeway when you didn't really have to do that. Right. It will go south when you should have gone north. We just trust Google. So we've lost spatial awareness. And I no longer do math. I get a calculator. I get my phone out and go, what's 44 times six again? Now I can do that math in my head. Right, of course. But then I, I second guess that I've got the answer wrong and I did it too quickly you and I'll check firm. it anyway. Right. And so we're de-skilling ourselves. And the problem for me is if we lose the ability to write copy, and we rely on ChatGPT, then we end up being dumb slaves to the output of machines. Well, that's why, well, go ahead. And then the other thing that was interesting was I was reading a thing yesterday saying that one of the big problems is the way AI works right now is it uses existing copy. Right. So if you if say, write me an article about Chesterfield sofa that explains its history and blah, 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 and whatever, and you can get a lovely article. Now, the problem is, as people keep writing articles about Chesterfield sofas, AI is now reading the articles written by AI. And when you multiply that millions and millions of times, and, it's, and, it's, and they've tested this with imagery as well, you start to get errors, and then the errors grow. And if you do it over a long enough period of time, if I said, draw me a picture of a Chesterfield sofa on Pixelr, and then Pixelr uses Chest AI Chesterfield sofas as reference for other Chesterfield sofas, after a while, they start to get really weird shapes and they lose it. So yeah. there is a kind of will AI eat itself because it'll become less good at what it does because it's using its own data. Wow. It's eating itself. Right. And so we rely on it now. Well, we need to watch this podcast back in 10 years or maybe five and go, hey, will we write? Are we going to be around in five years? Yeah. I'd say it's 50. <laughs> that, that because of the age. I don't mean the, yeah, the world. Yeah, if, if it's not the super volcano, the comet, the alien invasion, or the next round of super COVID, then maybe. But uh, but I, I, I and this year we have election year. Oh my god! Half yeah. the country is going to be mad at the other half of the country. For no good reason. So the least worst person can win. Yay! Um, but yeah, it's kind of, you know, I'm always fascinated to see where it actually goes, because. You can definitely be sure that this conversation with all the same subject cues would be completely different five years ago. And we wouldn't have had a clue as to what was coming. Because that's the thing. When, when, when you really look at the future, the stuff you don't expect is most likely to make the biggest change. I mean, the internet, nobody knew what that would do. Mobile phones, nobody knew what would that do. I, I remember when um, I had a mobile phone 
And uh, before that, I had a pager. And somebody said to me, oh, you can now do SMS, short message service on your phone. And I'm like, well, like, why would I write, what was it, 146 characters? Why would I, on a tiny keypad, go, you know, hey, babe, I'm coming home for dinner at 7 p.m., want me to bring anything from the store? Why would I do that? And I can ring them and use my voice and say, hey, babe. But you don't realize how <laughs> convenient it is to write something, be able to yeah. check it twice, send it, not reply straight away, knowing that they might be busy because they're driving or picking up the kids. And you kind of realize that it has- A benefit. It has a lot of benefits to being this, mm. the, the worst distribution uh, of, of communications in the world ever created since the carrier pigeon is tiny letters with limited characters that just goes bloop. But it took over the world. And, and now- Blackberry, you know, remember Blackberry? Yeah, and, and employees when they're late, sorry, I'm running late. And, you know, I'm stuck on the freeway. Are you? Well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. You're no. just sending me a text. You could be anywhere doing right. anything. And if I ring you and you don't pick up, that's actually socially acceptable. I might ring up to check to see if you're really stuck on the freeway or whether you just got out of bed late because you've got a hangover because I know you were partying last night from your Instagram. No. Um, but at the end of the day, you not picking up doesn't necessarily mean something. And suddenly <laughs> SMS is the best thing in the world. Because of your Instagram. No one knew that even if this, in this world of incredible comms, my primary communication with people I care about is short message service text on my phone with a shit thumb-driven virtual keyboard that spells almost half of what I write, writes the wrong word, and I have to correct it later. I mean, who Now knew? you can edit it. Who knew? Yeah, now. Now you can edit it. I know now. Yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. You know, everything we're saying now. So if you're watching the future of the, in YouTube, if, if it's now- What's the date? It's 2023. It's the- November whatever, 30th. It's November 30th. So if you're watching this in 2028, in November, you're probably going, what are these two morons even talking what about? What the, f yeah, health and wrong? genes and yeah, what, no and AI and AGI? Yeah, the no, aliens have already come down and they've told us what we were doing wrong. Yeah, uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, it's funny because I did post a post two days ago and it says, uh, LOL, my teacher said, you're not always gonna have a calculator in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right, thank you guys. Dr.